Increasingly, the world of art has been hampered or augmented, depending on who you ask, I guess, by the growing role the legal system is playing in contemporary art. Perhaps it was inevitable, now that the prices of so many luxury art items are rising into the stratosphere. Lawyers, particularly of the intellectual property variety, have found themselves playing a larger role in the way these luxury art items exist, circulate, and come to be in the world. This episode, we're going to discuss a new book by Joan Key titled Models of Integrity, Art and Law in Post-60s America. Key's new book promises to help us understand and navigate the huge and ever-growing topic. I'm Hurag Vartanyan, and this is the Art Movement's podcast from Hyperallergic. An associate professor of art history at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, Joan Key has been a working lawyer in Hong Kong and New York before she discovered her passion of art history. So I invited her to our studio to talk law and art. There's a lot to discuss. So let's get started. Hi, Joan. Hi, Rock. Thank you so much for having me. Well, your book is pretty fascinating. I mean, it's called Models of Integrity, Art and Law in Post-60s America. Congratulations on the book. Oh, thank you. You really go there. There are a lot of stories here because, you know, I, I don't think anyone would be surprised. Maybe some people maybe who aren't so familiar with art, but the legal world has now become all too familiar for contemporary artists and artist-adjacent folks like us. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I think especially after the 1960s, where artworks become larger, they mm -hmm. become structurally more complicated to make. You have, say, land art, for example. If you are going to have a land artwork, you're going to need permits. Right. And more importantly, you're going to need lawyers to negotiate those permits. Right. So that's another thing that becomes more salient uh, with works that deal with the environment in particular, is that it's not just about lawsuits or defending yourself mm -hmm. or negotiating contracts, but when you hire a lawyer, you also buy access in certain cases. So one of the chapters I focus on Christo and Jean-Claude, and a lot of it has to do with their ability to negotiate with farmers who live in an area that is, again, deeply suspicious of outsiders. Right. And their negotiation skills, especially Jean-Claude, were such that they were able to erect this long, immense project, even to the point where they actually won a negotiation prize from Harvard Law School. But what doesn't get talked about, and something that I wanted to emphasize, is the role that lawyers play in being able to tell, say, Christo and Jean-Claude, these are the people you should approach, right. this is the way that you should approach these permits. Because if you have lawyers that have built up their practice in a certain area, especially in a regional, less metropolitan part of the country, is that they are going to know exactly the dynamics of the politics that are involved in allowing you as a stranger to do something that you weren't able or people would be very suspicious of. So Christo is is right. originally from Bulgaria. And 1972, 1976, this is what, the height of the Vietnam War. People are still very suspicious about anyone coming from an Eastern Bloc country. I mean, it'd be only right. four years before Reagan decides that the Soviet Union is 
the evil right. empires. Well, it also adds a whole different aspect, right? Because he's he's also coming from a place where private property and property in general was very different and imagined. But you also talk about one thing where in the case of running fence, they had the option to do that on other land. That's I think right. you said in Mexico and in South Africa. That's right. And that was all owned by one person. And that would have been so much easier. But they decided to go the difficult route. And so this is one of the reasons why the book's key word is integrity. And I define integrity as what is it that confers identity onto someone? How does one become a person or human? One is that you have to have some kind of consistency of belief. Two is that you also have to be willing to sacrifice in order to make that belief possible. Hmm. The other is being able to realize that you are both individual, but also part of a larger structure. And so in many of these cases, with all of the artists that I discuss, they choose the more difficult route. Again, having to negotiate 9 million permits with hostile, snarky farmers, for example. In part, because in some ways, if you want to demonstrate or model your integrity, you have to put yourself in a very difficult or extreme situation. Mm-hmm. A good, another good example would be someone like Teching She, who is very well known for his durational one-year performances. And the general prompt isn't very sophisticated or very mm-hmm. complex, but if you have to, say, live outdoors for an entire year, right. okay, maybe after day one or day two, and I actually uh, give extra credit to my students for, I say, why don't you reenact Teaching She's performance just for one day? <laughs> Most of them can't even do an hour. So, for those who may not know, he's a prominent performance artist, conceptual artist, who did a series of one-year performances that he's best known for, but he's, of course, done more than that. So, I mean, that's a really good example, too. So, now, I'm thinking a little meta now because of the legal. Because, you know, we're often particularly hyperallergic. We're looking at these systems of power, and we're often examining them, figuring them out. Now, the legal apparatus is really made for people in power. So, what does that tell us about contemporary art? Do you know, because at the end of the day, it's not, it's not like the legal system was made for the disenfranchised. Do you know? So, where do you see that tension? And what is it about that that interests you? Or how do you see contemporary artists challenging that? A couple of ways that I think are quite interesting. So, one is that how do you situate yourself in, the, in a system mm-hmm. that doesn't value your existence? So, one right. of the chapters deals with the struggle for artists to have their labor recognized in its own special Which category. Which is a great chapter, by the way. Oh. I didn't even, re- I didn't, I, there were some details you go into that I was like, wait, really? I mean, and then when they were recognized, they were only recognized as painters or sculptors and all the, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Moral rights is something that is not really acknowledged in this country. And so there is lots of lobbying, lots of campaigning. Robert Rauschenberg threw his clout behind all of these California lawmakers to try to get moral rights recognized. And then Congress sort of throws artists a bone. Here, you can have moral rights, but we're going to put 900 million restrictions on it. So, given, say, a situation in which lawmakers don't really recognize your existence, Mm -hmm. how are you then going to engage with the legal system in such a way that you can be able to do what you want to do? Gordon Mata-Clark, for example, just outright defies the legal system, saying, I'm just going to cut into the pier, and if you want to sue me or put me in prison, I'm just going to have to uh, make a run for it. 
So I'm going to read this part because there's one part in your book where you talk about the opposite of a fine artist. And in it, it says, the opposite of a fine artist, including painter, sculptor, and illustrator, the official description used by the Labor Department for Visual Arts Artists is apparently a physicist. So that's from, the New York Times did an article about uh, different occupations. Right. And that article was based on different descriptors that the Department of Labor uses to describe different professions. And fine arts and physics were at opposite ends of the spectrum. (laughs) So already that tells you the extent to which prevailing political structures see art in a very kind of limited view. So given that narrow structure, how are you going to position yourself? How will you outfox? the system? How will you collaborate with lawyers in such a way to create situations that never would have been in existence? Another good example, and for me, this is why failure, especially generative failure, is so important. Mm-hmm. So, Seth Siegelob's The yep. Artist Reserve which we're Which we're definitely talking yes. about. Yes, go ahead. And it was a failure on So, do you want to describe levels. it for some people who sure. may not know? Because I think some of us who know it sort of talk about it as if everyone knows yeah, it. We, we, we talk about it as if it was that long-lost <laughs> uncle that comes to Thanksgiving dinner, yes. Right. Seth Siegelob worked with an attorney named Robert Perjansky. Robert Perjansky was based in New York. He had worked with many actors, many artists. Mm-hmm. And they collaborated on this massive, bulky document called The Artist's Reserved Rights agreement. Right. And its best known provision is that upon when a work is sold, that the initial seller, when that initial seller resells the work, the artist would get a cut of any profit of that subsequent sale. Which we often call resale royalties nowadays. Yes. Now, this agreement was translated into many European languages, published, freely distributed, And only a handful of artists have ever been able to use it successfully. So artists who already have a certain amount of institutional clout or institutional presence. But one of the interesting things for me was the degree to which lawyers in copyright or, say, in contract, argued about the merits of this agreement. In fact, to my knowledge, this is the first time that the idea of artistic labor had been argued so vigorously in legal circles, so Mm. circles well away from the art world. And so even though one might consider the agreement a failure in the sense that it wasn't widely implemented, I find it was actually a resounding success in making visible issues that artists wanted, say, politicians, lawmakers, people outside the art world to really stand up and take notice. It's an agreement that has had many different iterations, both mm-hmm. in artworks, such as Suzanne Lacey's body contract, in which she worked with a lawyer to sell the right to dis- sell to collectors the right to dispose of her organs upon her death. So that's one way in which this Siegelob agreement has been used as a form of artistic material. But I'm also interested in the ways in which artists or art world initiated projects have had relevance outside their original community. Right. Absolutely. I mean, in some ways, it's almost a conceptual project. And it's in and of itself, this sort of contract where it was exploring these sort of areas of artistic practice and what that meant. So now, why are you interested in this topic? I'm curious. So I majored in art history, okay. and I ended up going to law school as, uh, again, as many dutiful children tend to do. <laughs> My father said, you should learn a trade. And I said, well, do you mean 
carpentry, no, law or medicine. So we had the same parents. Yes. <laughs> the long tradition of Armenian sons going into medical school. Yes, a familiar refrain to us all. And when I was in law school, I had wanted to bring or incorporate some of my art historical background into legal work. But at that time, art law was a, it's not really a field. Even now, it's right. not really a field. It's, again, you work in trusts and estates or you work in contracts that happen to deal with artists or artworks. And at the time I went to law school, most of the discussion centered around freedom of expression, mm-hmm. cultural property. Right. But the problem, even though the scholarship in those areas have been very rich, very voluminous, the difficulty with those areas is that it doesn't get at, say, how do artists actually engage with the law in their work? Mm-hmm. You know, it's interested less in the legal history of art and more in the art history of law. What have, a great uh, phrase. Yep, I didn't have anyone to uh, really advise me except for one lone professor named Terry Martin, who had this abiding interest in art law, even though it wasn't his background. And he said that perhaps this is not the best time to think about these issues, but you might want to think about contemporary Chinese art. So I went to law school in the late 1990s, Mm -hmm. so now I'm dating myself. And this was a time when contemporary Chinese art really started to take off, but also when there were severe fissures between artists who were formerly friends. Mm -hmm. And these fissures would really center in, say, the sale of documentation concerning performance. So after Tiananmen Square in 1989, you had artists who worked in communities uh, in Beijing, and they would perform works and they would have their friends photograph their works. No contracts, no work for hire agreements. Fast forward, say, (laughs) 10 years later, and these works are selling for thousands of dollars. Now the knives are out. And the knives in question are not, say, literal, although in one case I think they actually were, is that uh, the knives take the form of well-paid American lawyers. Wow. So... So what happened with all that? You know, I guess that I I wasn't paying so much attention at that time to the legal. So what ended up happening? I mean, that sounds like a mess because we're talking about a lot of money. To my knowledge, most of these disputes have been settled out of court. Uh, But what was also interesting and something that I allude to in the final chapter of the book is how do we think about globalizations through jurisdiction? Mm -hmm. So we like to celebrate globalization as transnational. Questions of mobility often get prioritized. But for artists, it's also about where you choose to make your work because where you choose to make your work will determine the laws that will govern the production. So with these Chinese artists, a lot of these struggles happened over where are we going to have this lawsuit? Are we going to have it in the Mm. United States or are we going to have it in China, which ironically enough has more moral rights protection than the United States. Do you want to explain that for people who may not understand what that means? Sure. So moral rights refers to a body of law that basically gives a special privilege to artists. So for example, within moral rights, there is the right of integrity, meaning that an artwork cannot be destroyed, mutilated, or altered Mm -hmm. without the artist's consent because it would damage the artist's reputation. And in this country, there is a longstanding assumption that if you buy a work of art, up till even 1976, if you buy a work of art, you can do with it as you will. It's like a pair of shoes. You could stomp on it, you can set it on fire. 
if you bought it, you become the absolute owner of the work. That changes after 1976 because of revisions in copyright. But in China, there is some protection granted to the artist as the creator of the work that you just can't do with the work as you will. So how does that function on a daily way? So so let's say I bought a work from a Chinese artist, 1945, and I choose to... I don't know, throw it out. I can't throw it out. I mean, what what does that actually mean in a real daily world? So in terms of, say, this litigation or this struggle is that the main issue was that performance artists said that the documentation of their performance works Mm -hmm. belonged to them. And the photographers who took pictures of their work said, no, according to U.S. law, these forms of documentation belong to us. Now, In China, as far as I know, I am not a registered Chinese lawyer, but as far as I know, there is no law that says the performance artist owns the documentation of his or her work. But oftentimes, it's this absence or omission that allows questions like these to be litigated more openly than, say, in the United States, which says if you don't have some kind of work-for-hire agreement Mm -hmm. or some kind of previous agreement, then the documentation belongs to the photographer. And so this is also an issue that affects lots of performance artists now. So the market for performance artist documentation, to my knowledge, really didn't gain momentum until the 1990s. But what has happened is that there are performance artists that don't have access to photographs of their own early work because the photographer under U.S. law owns the copyright. It's crazy, isn't it? It's crazy. So now, as an art historian, did this book, (laughs) did it depress you a little? Because there are a lot of complicated issues. And you do get the sense that some artists are out of their depth, as well as some dealers and and collectors and stuff. There is a little sense of that, because this is extremely complicated. What was your general feeling? What is your general feeling? I think on the one hand, the law is an extension of a larger structure that governs and regulates what it is that we do, even down to, say, crossing the street. You can't cross the street. At, well, actually, we're in Williamsburg, so scratch that. <laughs> but uh, Most places. It's yeah, fine. But it's part of, say, a larger structure in, in which we are in, that there right. really is no way to live outside of that structure. So in some ways, the book itself, I think, endorses, a, say, a very maybe a depressingly pragmatic view of how to function. One of the reasons why I decided to focus on Felix Gonzalez Torres is because I think he did find a way to work within the system, acknowledging that, okay, we live in this particular system where it's a capitalist market, there are laws that are made for us by people who probably don't really care about us. But he was able to tweak the idea of the certificate of authenticity, which, of course, all collectors want and desire in order to secure the exchange value of their works, but word it and frame it in such a way that the collector is no longer just some buyer or acquisitions monster, but more of a collaborator. (laughs) So that, in fact, the loan agreements for Felix Gonzalez Torres works are far more particular than the actual certificates of authenticity that accompany a sale. (laughs) Because these collectors are saying, no, you know, we want to make sure that the work takes on the manifestation that we think Felix originally wanted it to. Even though Felix himself was like, no, you know what, You, you can install it any way you want. And he would actually say, I think it's really funny that museums are so 
anal about making sure that this particular bead is used in this particular fashion. But uh, in the book, and I made an effort to bring in images that were perhaps not associated with the works, is that I made a matrix of all the candies that had been used in the manifestation or the realization of one of Felix's works. And they ranged from anything from dark blue to sea green. So there is a lot of flexibility. And I think the flexibility of the installation is what keeps the work alive. So is there a particular provision in his contracts that you think really stands out? They're not necessarily contracts because uh, legally they don't fit the definition of a contract, but the certificates, they differ depending on the work. So, for example, the works that involve candies piled up in a corner where audiences or viewers can take candies freely, they tend to be much more permissive. The permissiveness actually decreases in some cases, such as the light strings, that light bulbs have to be on or they have to be, say, uh, displayed in a certain way. In terms of provisions that stand out, there is one certificate of authenticity that says that involves, I think it was fortune cookie messages, and the fortune cookie messages had to be positive. I think that was the provision that stood out. (laughs) That's quite a provision. One of the big whoppers in this book is about Gordon Matta-Clark. And what you discovered, I mean, is pretty incredible. So what you discovered was the fake estates or the this project that he did, which, again, I'm calling it a project right now, where he bought these slivers of territory and all these little real estate things around the city of New York, unused, almost unusable spaces throughout the city. You discovered that they weren't really an artwork during his lifetime, were they? No. So... In the Archives of American Art, which, by the way, is an absolute treasure trove for thinking about art and law relationships because they keep things such as legal agreements and lawsuit records in some cases. And so this is also just uh, another subcurrent in thinking about how we view contemporary art and its say relationship to society is also to think about the artist as herself a legal subject that is subject to all kinds of again different sorts of assaults be they larger or smaller be they say accusations of infringement or what have you but I'm going off on a tangent here so with the Gordon Matta Clark project one thing that I noticed is that all of the photographs that Matta Clark had taken of these unused properties, right. they're called sliver lots. They usually range from anywhere between 25 to about 150 feet. Cabinet right. did a really wonderful project where they actually tracked the location of each of these lots. And most of them don't exist anymore. No, that's correct. Right. And that when Matta Clark had taken these pictures and he had had the lot descriptions, is that my understanding was that they were in some kind of box, but then they were reassembled. And then photographs of those reassembled images were then taken. And again, fast forward 20 years later, they become artworks that are acquired by the Guggenheim. Now, this is also a phenomenon that's not exclusive to Matta Clark alone, where say, images or materials that the artist, an artist has made then become reassembled or repurposed into works that are then, say, sold to institutions or, say, sold on the open market. There was a recent Gerhard Richter case in Germany mm-hmm. where someone tried to repurpose canvases that Richter had thrown out right. and sell them on the market. Now, right. what's also interesting about, say, 
the decision there. And the German court, because again, Germany has a has a strong moral rights tradition, is that it found in favor of Richter. If that case had been tried in the United States, and I say the United States because the Texas court would have found in favor of Richter anywhere else in the United States, and lawyers in the audience can correct me if I'm wrong, is that the courts would have found in favor of the person who had forged Richter's trash. Why Texas? Why Texas so different? So in Texas, say, if you throw something out, yep. Texas courts still recognize that that rubbish still belongs to you. Really? Until it's taken away. Until it's, But then after it's taken away? I guess if it goes to a dumpster, I don't know. It's yeah, right. a landfill. Wow. You know. That's, but, that says a lot. Wow. But in other uh, state jurisdictions, and this is something that makes thinking about law and art in America particularly difficult, is that lots of what we regard as law is all defined by uh, different states. Right. So in New York, for example, if you were to throw out your painting and leave it on the curb, the expectation is that you have abandoned your property rights because you intended to throw that out. So this mm-hmm. is no longer your property and anyone is free to again, forage and use whatever trash that you have. Now, this is actually something that I think believe happened to Frank Stella, where someone literally went through his trash and then tried to sell his work, I believe, in Canada. But Canada <laughs> has a much stronger moral rights uh, a code than we do. So court, the court found in favor of Stella's saying that, no, you can't take what it is that Stella threw out and sell it as if it was a Stella work. Right. Well, you know, there's a Francis Bacon, or sorry, quote-unquote Francis Bacon at the Brooklyn Museum that supposedly was something he threw out and somebody eventually donated. But what you're suggesting with the Gordon Matta Clark is pretty amazing because, you know, the question is whether it's actually an artwork and whether he actually saw it as an artwork. And you're saying there is no evidence to suggest he saw it as an artwork. At the same time, there's no evidence to suggest that he didn't intend for it not to be an artwork as well, because uh, a lot of the correspondence talks about, well, this is something that he intended to save up perhaps for an unspecified future. Yep. But again, eventually, I think because after his death, and he, he died in very young, and this is true with a lot of artists who die very young, is that there is a real desire to recuperate that artist's legacy by looking and kind of giving new life to some of the materials or images that he or she had worked with. Got it. So now let's talk a little bit about Sally Mann. Because I think as an artist, there's a lot of really complicated issues around the images, particularly of children. Now, what did you find in your research around this issue? Because, you know, in some ways, her photographs really kind of go against the whole idea of like kitty porn rules, you know, like meaning like you can't really circulate photos of of children nude, you know, on the internet, you know, but Sally Mann seems to be able to do that, you know, and maybe not on the internet, but just in general. Why? So I'll preface this by saying that, so usually with University of California Press publishes their books in China. Printing costs are a lot cheaper. This book had to be published in Thailand because their Chinese printer wouldn't accept this book. Hmm. I also had to consult with the general counsel for my university because I was afraid of being put on a sex offender registry list. Wow. So a few years ago, 
when the photographer's gallery in London wanted to have a Sally Mann exhibition, they actually had to hire lawyers to ask for advice about can we even exhibit these photographs. So the question that you bring up, I think, is very still very much an active one. It mm-hmm. also depends on, say, where these images are displayed. I doubt that a show of Sally Mann's immediate family could ever take place in China, at least now. Hmm. In the United States, we have, again, we've had numerous high-profile lawsuits. So wait, let me let me just understand why in China could that not happen while here it can? Radical differences in the legal system. Like China is a place where again you need a VPN to access certain websites. Right, there, right, there are right, firewalls. Right. Uh, I guess why would those photographs be the the tripwire here? You know what I mean? Why are those? Are there just stricter laws around reproducing those kinds of images? Where is the legal framework for that? Like why would that be? So the printer wouldn't accept it. Why? Well, one is that it would almost certainly attract the attention of censors, and it. it would also, say, uh, trigger, uh, say, existing obscenity laws in China. That's gotcha. my understanding. Gotcha, so. gotcha. So now, how did this function now? Like, how does this function now in in terms of like, is there a separate set of rules for art in the U.S. than non-art? And is that why her image is still? And I'll tell you, one of the reasons I'm interested in this issue is when we first started Hyperallergic, people would often point out because Artnet at the time used to have like their most popular images, you know, images. And Sally Mann was almost always at the top. And no offense, but Sally Mann's not the genius that everyone needs to know about all the time, even though she's a very talented artist and all these things. And many of us suspected it was because the images were being used by kitty porn I'm not lovers. surprised. Do you know, so th- this is what I'm trying to get, understand, and I'm trying to see, so are the laws in the U.S. totally separate? Like, as an art person, as an artist, are they allowed to create these images? While, you know, on the other side, if it was a non-art person made these images, they would certainly probably face trouble in the legal system, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. I, I think that to a certain extent that because they're artworks, one, they are, again, and I hate to use the word aesthetic, but I now I'm, I'm, I'm forced into that corner. They well, have, this is exactly what it does, right? Yeah. This is exactly the kind of conversation. Sorry, go That's, ahead. Uh, so one is that, again, they're really just carefully composed, that they are just visually utterly compelling is that offers a certain amount of defense, primarily because when you have these images that might trigger some kind of litigation, Mm -hmm. so litigation involves going to court of some kind, usually, and if it goes to, say, trial, or if there's a hearing or a motion, it will go in front of a judge. Mm -hmm. Vast majority of judges, even now, 2019, certainly in 1994, middle-aged, white, straight men, for whom art has to have some element of the beautiful. And this is something that I talk in my introduction because beauty in my field in art history is something of a dirty word. We're not supposed to say words like beautiful or expressive, <laughs> but in, say, the legal hive mind, that's what they think. They think that right. art has to have some kind of aesthetic contact. Right. I totally get that. I always joke that it's like when you cross a border, you realize that you have to reduce things down to stereotypes. So when people are like, you're an art critic, what does that do? I don't sit here and go, oh, well, I think about, you know, relationships of power. I go, no, no, no. I criticize paintings or whatever. You know, you reduce yourself into this character. I produce shade. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So one of the things you brought up about the judge, which I think is really interesting, because you talk a lot about Tershing Shea, particularly about sort of like as an Asian American and how he 
navigated, whether it was the legal system that comes up against him or, you know, even talking about being an undocumented person. Can you talk a little bit about that and what that sort of, maybe that's like part of his practice and part of his work that people don't often think about. And I thought that, I mean, I love his work, so I, I could talk about him all day. I, but I, I, you know, I, I do too. Yeah, but I think that aspect of it, I think you did such a good job in being able to clarify that. So I'm wondering if you can inform people a little bit about that layer of his work that's often not looked at. I'm glad you describe him as an Asian American because at the time he made these one-year performances, he was an illegal alien. Mm -hmm. But I also see these one-year performances as an extended effort on his part to claim a place in a society that legally excluded him from even existing. And right. to me, there's nothing more American than that. That <laughs> the idea that you claim your place, even right. though, say, property holders or the law or politicians say you have no place, to me, that is the most American thing you can do. Right. And so that's something I, that I wanted to emphasize, especially because at the time that he made these works, the law on illegal aliens proliferated. So by 1980, Ronald Reagan is in place. So his idea of law and order, that uh, we keep America safe for Americans. And of course, <laughs> of course, he's not saying that his view of Americans is really, say, property owners. Right. That's right. Especially white property owners right. that are born in this country. That's right. And so I, for me, Teching She is someone that is able to point to all of these different structures in place, but he refuses to be determined by them. And for me, I think that is a kind of model of integrity that we see, say, other artists taking up, like Tanya Bruguera, for example, mm -hmm. uh, with her uh, recent work with immigration. Right. So now, what do you think that people often don't see about his work and some of these legal... I mean, you talk a lot about the one-year rope performance with uh, Linda Montana, the the fact that they were sort of, you know, she had been doing some performances like this previously. They ended up agreeing to be sort of tied together for a year. And as we've heard, you know, that wasn't really very clean the way that sort of <laughs> ended up in terms of a lot of the issues in there. Do you want to... No, I, I mean, I think rope piece is a work that is grossly understudied. I think there should be floods of dissertations about rope piece because it's such a complex work on so many levels. One point that I really wanted to emphasize is that it really opens up questions about the nature of collaboration. So right. Artistic collaboration as a practice, it's something that in some ways we take for granted in histories yep. of contemporary art, that there is a persistent idea that the collaboration involves equals of some kind. But in right. fact, it's the opposite. And Rope Piece really elaborates that quite beautifully. And throughout the course of that project, you see... In the beginning, there are snapshots that were taken of Linda Montano and Teching She, and you know, they seem to be getting along. He'll be reading a Chinese language newspaper, she'll be reading the New York Times, or they'll be riding their bicycles. But as the year progresses, and I wasn't able to bring these images in, something that we can also talk about in terms of image permissions, which weighs heavily on anyone who writes about art is you have snapshots, for example, of a broken toilet and medicine cabinet, and there's a little piece of paper and it says fight on it. Oh, and wow. so you just see that this collaboration, even though they're both really committed to it, is that maintaining 
the tenor of that collaboration and, say, power struggles, for example, that really starts to break down. At Phil's library, Linda Montano generously donated quite a number of her personal papers. And among them include some clippings that Teching She himself had collected in the course of Rope Peace. Mm -hmm. And some of those clippings had to do with marital breakdown, <laughs> uh, how to manage your rage. And so the clippings don't necessarily say or indicate his state of mind, but they're very, very suggestive of the difficulty of having this collaboration. And I think that kind of affective response, especially negative affect, yeah. that doesn't get talked about as nearly as much as perhaps it should, because I think that's one of the most important things about collaboration is that emotional dynamic. So for those who may not know Rope Piece, they literally the two artists, Linda Montana and Tishing Shea, tied themselves together for a whole year. Now, I want to read a paragraph from your book, because I think this touches a little bit on the collaboration. You, and you quote Dan Cameron's essay against collaboration, which I think is pretty, I think this is a really fascinating part. So I'm just going to read it. Not long after Shea and Montano finished Rope Piece, curator and critic Dan Cameron criticized collaboration as an artistic strategy based on an irreversible imbalance of power in his essay against collaboration. Shaded by the fairness and equality rhetoric exceedingly popular in the U.S. political landscape of the late 1970s and early 80s, Cameron argued that collaborations were often based on established artists exploiting the work of lesser-known colleagues. For instance, and this is a quote, a Keith Haring picture created by LA2 is still a Keith Haring. Cameron implied that collaborations produced states of forced consensus that reflected little of the participants' artistic characters. True or legitimate collaboration took place only when each participant contributed equally to a work's realization. That's pretty deep because I think that's come up again. You know, I think this is kind of one of those things like, what is a collaboration? How does that work? It takes a, almost a legalistic sort of view of this, but it really does kind of capture a little bit about that. So now, what did you learn about this collaboration? And where was it faltering? You know, in the case of the rope piece? I think it was rope piece. It wasn't really about credit. So on that note, Linda Montana was very clear that this was Teching's idea, and hence this is his work. So mm -hmm. it's a way of thinking about the work that situates it within, say, a conceptual art framework. Right. And to my knowledge, there's no ill will between the two artists on okay. that front. But during the course of Rope Piece, it seems so deceptively simple. Okay, you're right. just tied to someone for a whole year. The rope length is, I think, something like 10 feet long. It seems easy, but you live with someone day in and day out. And sort of the minor struggles of simply being together. So we also live in an age where there is lots and lots of celebration about togetherness, the commons being a keyword. If I never see the word commons again in a fellowship application, <laughs> I will be extremely grateful. <laughs> Is that being together is actually really, really hard. And right. I think that's one of the greatest legacies of Rope Peace is to emphasize the extent to which collaboration is really about how do you be together and how what kinds of struggles are involved in agreeing to be together in the first place. And I think that's something perhaps we might take a little bit for granted in this day and age of you know, unity, commons, uplift, and what have you. So do you think artists have woken up and dealers and others, like, are these issues being dealt with in a more 
I don't know, in a more equal way, in a more conscious way? Well, how would you characterize it? I certainly it? think that artists are much more attuned to some of their legal rights than they were, say, in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. One thing is that all of the artists that I talk about in my book are keenly aware of what are some of the rights that the legal system now entitles them to. So, for example, mm -hmm. was copyright, that they right. can withhold permission to reproduce an image. So, in some cases, I had artists asking to read the text that I had written about their work. Before this is the new trend. Went. This is the new trend. Sorry, go ahead. Now, there is, to my knowledge, there's an art historian that actually is attempting to file a class action lawsuit against museums that require art historians and other writers on art to pay a fee before reproducing an image in their collection. Right. The museum does not own the copyright to that image, yet they're still charging art writers for the use of said images. Legally, I would imagine that, say, we would be able to use these images in a scholarly context mm -hmm. under the doctrine of fair use. And I was able to... Certainly at a university publisher. Yes, and I, <laughs> a nonprofit publisher. That's that. right. I was able to speak with Judge Pierre Laval of the Second Circuit, who is probably the foremost architect of the fair use provision. So the idea of transformative. So the idea that uh, copyright is not really a means of exclusion, but it's mm -hmm. really about how do you encourage imagination? How do you encourage creative practice? That's certainly how, doesn't feel like that. It now. doesn't feel like that. <laughs> when I was talking to Judge Laval, for him, this was... He, he said, really thought that? He said, I am so against the idea that copyright is just another iteration of property as a form of exclusion. I want to think about copyright as let's carve out these fair use provisions. Let's allow people to create from what has already been done. But then how did we get here, Joan? I mean, this is not... I mean, that sounds because great, but is, we're not there yet. This is a country that is founded on private property. And private property, its root definition is the right to exclude others from using your stuff. Right, right. Well, it's then, super depressing. Actually, depressing kind of might be... <laughs> 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 Which is... Um, and I wanted to bring uh, one point up. Yesterday, I went to the Whitney to hear my former university professor, Jonathan Weinberg, uh -huh. talk about his new book, Peer Groups. And he made a comment that has stayed in my mind ever since. And he was saying that... What is the relationship between Matta Clark taking over this abandoned pier and, say, a gay community that used the pier as basically a sunbathing roof to cruise, to meet others, that it mm -hmm. was in some ways a, a de facto community center? Right. What is that relationship? And I was thinking about that. It struck me that the queer community that was using the pier was, in fact, modeling a more inclusive idea of property. So instead of laying claim to something, then padlocking the doors and saying nobody else can access this, right. that their presence opened up the work so that the work could itself become a certain kind of exemplar or emblem of a more inclusive uh, right. way of being. At a time when, again, New York was crime-ridden, say, People were very conscious about protecting themselves, vigilantes, right. protecting their right. belongings. How is it that we can invert that kind of thinking? So then how does Gordon Matta-Clark fit into that? So do you think he was attempting to sort of liberate that, make them more open? Is that what you think he was doing then in relation to what Jonathan was saying at that event? Mm. 
So one of the reasons why I find art and the art and law intersection interesting is that it, we can start to bring in legal concepts or theories to bear on artistic mm-hmm. practice. Right. And if we bring in, say, legal conceptions of property, it really complicates the Gordon Matta Clark story, especially with Day's End, the work that he constructed on uh, the Manhattan waterfront. Right. Because on the one hand, yes, he laid claim to something that didn't belong to him. And then he padlocked all the doors and tried to secure the building to the best of its ability because, again, it was the site of his work. At the same time, he also saw his actions as a form of liberation, especially from a New York City municipal government that was they were just going to let the peers rot. Right. And so when he was apprehended and when you had the New York PD kind of breathing down his back, he wrote this letter saying, well, actually, I'm doing all of you a favor because clearly you couldn't give a crap what happens to this peer. And I'm trying to make something useful, something, dare I say it, beautiful for <laughs> a, a larger public. You can say it here. It's all good, Joan. So now let's go through a couple of works because, you know, we could talk forever because I think this book people really need to check out. It's super fascinating and it offers a whole different perspective perspective on pretty well-known works and looks at them in a whole different way. So now, Chris Burton's shoot piece, 1971, he shoots somebody in a gallery. If that person had died, would Chris Burton have been arrested? I'm oh, guessing. Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. So how about even shooting someone? Isn't that legal? Isn't Shouldn't he have been arrested for doing that? So the thing about shoot that I've also found interesting, and so Questions of property are one of the main subcurrents in the book, and it's not just intellectual property, which is usually how art and law relationships are frequently framed, Mm -hmm. is that the performance took place in a private space. Mm. Now, if it had taken place at a museum or, say, a public institution, well, that he might, Burden might have been, again, apprehended for attempted manslaughter even. So being on private property change that? I think it did. Wow. The other thing is that the other person involved in that work consented to being in that work. I Mm, think that's also another reason why. But was there a contract? No, there was no contract. So it was just a verbal. Yes. If it was a verbal uh, thing. Well, you know, you bring up an interesting point because a lot of the works that were undertaken in the 1970s, you couldn't do them anymore. You would be sued. Right. right. Yeah. Well, I mean, the other one, the Tom Otterness, you know, the infamous piece about killing the dog. Mm-hmm. I mean, could you imagine that today? Right. Exactly. <laughs> the burden work also was very interesting to me because it was one of the first works that, to my mind, underlined the importance of ethics as another criterion for judgment, for thinking about contemporary art. Hmm. So one is that shoot actually was discussed by a legal scholar who was questioning, is it right for burden to do this work? And so in my mind, that also allowed a way of thinking that brought art into the legal imagination. Mm-hmm. So this is also another sub-theme in the book, is that in some ways, artworks are able to anticipate situations that the law should also pay attention to. A right. good example would be the Boston-based conceptual artist Jay Jaroslav. 
a name that many of you may not be familiar with now, but back in the day, again, he hung out with uh, you know, Douglas Hubler, whose friends with Matta Clark. In fact, Matta Clark asked Jaroslav, how can I dodge the Vietnam War draft? Because Jaroslav <laughs> was known for creating false identities. Oh, wow. And how he would do that was to obtain birth certificates of dead infants from Boston City Hall, and then use that certificate to get a driver's license, and then a driver's license to get a passport, and uh, so forth. And so he was modeling identity theft mm -hmm. in a time before identity theft had even become a thing. Ooh, another artist before their time. <laughs> so now let's talk about Santiago Sierra, an artist that also gets under my skin because... What, why know, does he get under your skin? Well, I mean, because it's often, these are like works that Did often deal with, you know, he's often working with disenfranchised and underprivileged individuals. And I think that's what gets under my skin a little bit. So I'm curious about those because, you know, what are the legal issues for an artist that does that? You talk about the piece, 12 workers paid to remain inside cardboard boxes, but there's certainly a lot more controversial Extreme works. works. Yes, 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 yes. So... What are the rules for that? So when you talked about depression as being a perhaps an unacknowledged theme of the book is that I found Sierra's works profoundly depressing because to me, they show the extent to which the legal current legal structures allow these works to happen. Right. Because it's actually again, as long as someone says, yeah, you can tattoo me or you can would put me under a box. And or pay I, me to have sex. Or pay me to have to sex. With a stranger. And yeah. the law says it's okay. You can yeah. do that. Right. And so this is also where we have the misalignment between law and ethics or law and morality. That morally we think this is re reprehensible. This should not be allowed. But the law says, no, it's fine because there's free will. There's consent. They, there was a mutually agreed exchange of payment. But isn't that exactly what I was bringing up earlier about the whole idea of it really just sort of reinforces the power structure in some ways, you know, and who gets to make those decisions Absolutely. and who and how it works. So now are we getting to a place where, I mean, I don't want to pretend like the art world has so much power because we don't, you know, in our communities, we have some power, we have access to power, perhaps proximity to power, you know, all these different things. But we don't have that much power, really. Do you see things becoming a little more egalitarian for artists or for art people? Or, you know, are we just trying to figure out where the legal system's going and who has the reins and how this works? What's your take? I feel like artists are definitely informing themselves more rigorously about how the law works. Whereas, say... Even say, I don't know, like you know, 10 or 20 years ago, that a lot of the focus was on, say, politics, protest, which mm -hmm. are all extremely necessary. Mm -hmm. But I think in some ways it's even more necessary to develop a literacy in how laws are made, how are they enforced. Right. The human dimension of dealing with agents associated with the law, such as judges, that there are some judges that will be sympathetic and some judges that will be just outright completely ignorant. Uh, there's a part in my book where I talk about the top 10 worst judges in New York City, that there was an actual Zagat rating, or Zagat-like rating that <laughs> Ralph Nader had produced to basically warn people that, yeah, you better be careful if your case goes up against so-and-so. So I think artists are making a concerted effort to inform themselves. I find that uh, gallerists certainly know right. their way around the law. Right. But one of one thing that really concerns me is that 
a lot of artists, I would the vast majority, just don't have access to legal assistance. That right. there are wonderful organizations like Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts, but you're going to be on a wait list for months before right. some lawyer finds time in his or her caseload to take up your cause. So, what do you think should change, Joan? How long do we have? <laughs> Our whole lifetime. But really, like, what, what do you think are some of the big issues you'd love to see change? Because, you know, you've, you've been doing the research, and this book proves it, uh, among other things. But, you know, you, you're getting a little bit of an eagle's eyes view of the issue now. You've done all this research. Now, where are those fault lines that you would like to see a little dealt with? Well, one, of course, there's discussion. One is that I would really like to see some kind of network forming between, say, artists and, say, lawyers or judges or police because, and this is from an academic viewpoint, is that one of the really undermined connections is what is the relationship between humanities and the professions? There's actually surprisingly little literature that talks about this relationship. Mm. And I think this is actually where artists can play a really su substantial and major role in thinking about what are these situations that the law should pay attention to? How is it that artists can provoke or stimulate conversations that the law cannot? Because again, being an artist is one of the very few occupations where you don't have to be an expert. It's not like law where you have to study for 9 million years, or in my case, cramming the night before the bar exam. <laughs> but uh, You're still here. <laughs> but the professions are all about demonstrating mastery or expertise. Right. If you're an artist, you don't have to do that. It's very freeing. Right. Right. But that freedom also comes with an obligation to use that freedom to, again, model situations that uh, those in the professions, those who have real power, however it might be defined, can then think about the ways in which artists deal with these situations to create, say, a more fair playing ground. So I now, can't believe I just used the word fair. That's another word I thought I wasn't going to use because, again, fairness is another construct who determines the terms of fairness. So subjective. Yes. Right, exactly. So now, did you find anything about critics or curators in this? Like, the way they sort of fit in? Because, you know, I'm waiting for one day, like, critics are going to start getting those cease and desists or something. I don't know why, maybe libel, but, you know, partly because what we do does have an impact, whether, you know, you could argue it doesn't have an impact on maybe the monetary value, though sometimes it does. And, you know, when when items get more and more high priced, people want to fix their value, right? They don't like the wild cards. So they use the legal system sometimes to make sure that doesn't happen. Any cases that you saw that were, might be of interest for people? Um, one case that comes to mind is there was a case involving a Calder sculpture. Mm -hmm. And there was a debate, and I talk about this in the book, I don't have the exact year off the top of my head, but the case concerned an incident where two sides were disagreeing on whether or not it was an original Calder. Mm -hmm. And the judge in question found in favor of the side that said it was a real Calder, simply because the expert witness that that side had called had spent more time looking at it, even though that expert <laughs> was far less known than the expert who said, well, no, this is not a Calder. He just took what, three seconds to look at it and said, no, this is, this is not right. Wow. So that's the Greenberg Gallery v. Bauman and Antwistle. That's right. Uh, case that uh, took place in the early 90s. So that was the thing? The expert witness spent more time with it? Yes. So therefore, they were more experts. Yes. So this is also something that I think artists or curators or dealers 
would find useful is to also think about what is what is the strange mind of the judge that looks at say works what what are sort of the criteria that they have in their heads so is that work in the catalog resonate then like meaning like if it is now all of a sudden it's authentic any idea like what happened to that work Oh, so that work became an orphan because oh. the side that said, no, this is not a real Calder, this particular expert witness was renowned, just kind of the made leading Calder yeah. guy in the art world. But the, according to the judge, he said, oh, no, no, that guy didn't uh, do his uh, due diligence. He just spent three <laughs> seconds looking at it. And so even though the court essentially ruled that, yes, it is an authentic Calder, to my knowledge, I don't think it's ever been sold. It's just an orphan because the market wouldn't touch it. Wow. Even though legally it is. It is. The preeminent Calder expert said, no, this is not a Calder. So the law only goes so far. So there's also something that I also talk about, say, the law of the art world versus the law was a capital L. And the two are not necessarily aligned. Are there other places where that where that friction is very clear? Um, I mean, fair use would be one. So um, one example would be, say, you could use an image by an artist, say, in a scholarly text without mm-hmm. getting their permission under, say, fair use. They might come after you, but I'm fairly sure that most courts will say that this is fair use, it's nonprofit, what have you. But if you don't get that permission, if, say, the artist is well-known or represented by a powerful gallery, it will significantly inhibit your ability to operate in the art world in the way that you want. So, for example, you might get uh, blacklisted. Uh, I don't know. I'm I'm just uh, thinking of all kinds of conspiracy uh, scenarios in my head. But, again, the downside. I'm not a fan of the blacklist thing because I don't know if it's totally true. I don't know either. I'm I'm just speculating. But there would be many unhappy or displeased people. And, again, this is – we also live in, say, and when we th- say the art world, it's also about these kinds of social bonds that are reinforced over you know, connections, over, say, numerous kinds of engagements. And so another theme that I emphasized in my introduction is that this is a risk society. So we right. always have to think about how do we manage certain risks? Is it worth it to, say, I don't know, reproduce an image that Teching Shed didn't want to reproduce just for the sake of this book? And I made that decision that, no, it wasn't, that uh, every single image, and this is also something that my publisher required, is that all the images had to ask for permission, in some cases pay a fee. And we're still there. And we're still there, (laughs) even though the law probably would say, well, yeah, this is fair use, but... You have to take it to court. I don't want to spend the rest of my life defending myself from infringement. Well, Joan, if you ever want to do that, I think some of us would build an altar and a monument to you. Because I think one day that that's a battle that needs to happen. Um, I think it will happen at some point. Right. And hopefully it will. Well, thank you, Joan. This was fascinating. And I think, you know, it's rare to find a book that makes me think about well-known works in different ways. And I think that's something you've done and accomplished. So congratulations on that. And everyone should check out, the book is called Models of Integrity, Art and Law in Post-60s America by Joan Key. Thanks so much, Joan. Thank you very much. A special thanks to Sun Sun for providing the music for this episode. I'm Hrag Vartanyan, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening and enjoy your week.